Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko. Welcome to episode 2857 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to talk about learning to build a business today. We're going to talk about learning how to sell. We're going to talk about farming and ranching. We're going to talk about all of this with a young man that's 22 years old. And it's his third appearance on the Survival Podcast. His first appearance, we, we didn't quite figure out exactly when it was. He was either 16 or 17 years old. And he had already started doing this uh, in a kind of like, I'm going to give it a shot way. And, uh, you know, he's not like the Mac Daddy of Yaks today yet or anything, but he's, he's, you know, he's making a living and he is building a success. And at 22, he's still living life on his own terms after dropping out of school at 16 to start a yak farm and to pursue his dream. And, uh, he's also an anarchist. We didn't really talk about that today much at all, but I think it, it comes through from anybody when, when they are of the mindset that we can do things without the state. And uh, we had a really fascinating discussion today. We talked about selling. We talked about getting over fears. We talked about niche markets, the advantages and disadvantages of them. We talked about mistakes, uh, trying to do too many things at once. We talked about naysayers telling you you're crazy for pursuing your dream and a whole bunch more. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. I mean, when you think about this kid started out at 16 years of age, um, raising yaks and raising pigs and raising goats, and has built you know a relatively successful enterprise by the age of 22, uh, it says a lot about what can be done when the mind and the body are both willing. So we'll talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is the Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. Um, I have to tell you, if you're not if you're not listening to the Wealth Studying podcast, you're missing out. It's not a real long show, uh, but he's, you know, John is great about making sure he gets a show out on time, every time, all the time. Uh, great insights into the world of economics and investing, and John is just a fantastic guy. Of course, he's a member of our expert council. He's been on the show a ton of times, not just as a council member, but as a guest. He's been a a great giving member of this community for over a decade now. I first met him in Utah at a uh, prepper convention, and he came into my booth, talked to me for a few minutes, and I didn't know this at the time. He went and stood about 30 minutes. For about 30 minutes, he stood outside the booth and listened to me talk to people. And at that point, he decided I actually was who I sounded like on the on the show, and he wanted to work with us going forward. And he's just an upstanding individual. Wonderful guy and really switched on in the world of investing. Also the author of the book, The Robots Are Coming, about pending automation, its impact on society. You need to check him out today. Wealthsteading.com is the website. The Wealthsteading Podcast with John Pagliano. Next up, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, the guy you shouldn't even require any introduction at this point. He's the Berkey Guy. Come on now. He's the Berkey Guy. So where are you going to go to? The Berkey Guy.com? No, don't go to the Berkey Guy.com. No, because Jeff's really great at delivering the best products you can get from Berkey and other prepping items, but he has uh, mark he's like marketing bipolarism or something. His website is directive21.com. That's where you'll find the Berkey guy and all his great stuff. And, you know, water is life. We all need to make sure we have a way to make sure we have clean, pure drinking water in our homes. And Berkey, to me, is the best bang for the buck out there. It looks great. There's no moving parts. There's nothing to break. It's just a great tool overall to have in your homestead. Um, 
and it just it just works and it works right every time. But you don't want to get your Berkey from like some guy that started selling Berkey at the gun show like last week. You want the Berkey guy, the original Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason. Check him out. Directive21.com is the website. Directive21.com. All right, with that, before I bring Nick on, let's talk about our quote of the day. This is by Henry Ward Beecher, and he was a uh, basically a, a, a preacher uh, in the 1800s uh, in the United States. And he said, the worst thing in this world next to anarchy is government. I, I wonder if there's a, there's a famous quote, I don't remember exactly what it is, but, but the, the, Nick, uh, what's his name, uh, Winston Churchill said something about democracy being the, the best worst form of government we have or something like that. You know, basically, like the, the problem with, with democracy is it is the, it's terrible, but it's better than anything else we have, so we're stuck with it if we want to have a free society. Uh, I wonder if he was borrowing on this a little bit. Um, yeah, the worst thing in the world next to anarchy is government. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I think maybe there's some real truth in that. And, and it. I think it plays into the fact that people think that that anarchists, agorists, you know, the whole community, voluntarism, etc., that we're somehow like utopianists, that we, we believe that if government would just go away, everything would be perfect. And it's the statist that believes if we just get government right, the world can be perfect. We just get the, we vote in the right people, vote out the bad people, this form of government, you know, if we have, if we have a democratic socialism, everything will be great. Like the people promising utopia, are, are always members of government. In fact, our constitutional form of government, our, you know, you got legislative, judicial, uh, executive. Uh, the way the U.S. Constitution is set up is actually, it, if you if you look up utopian, <laughs> and you look at the original concept of utopian, that's what they thought it would be. I, I, you can't make that up. Anarchists accept the fact that people act in their self-interest, and they always will. And that since that, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, it just is. So in the end, what we need is, is something where people acting in their own best interest has real-world consequences. And the less interference we have from government, the more true that is. Because what you'll find is the people that do the greatest harm to others are always sheltered under, under the skirt of government. They're, they're like little chickens that run around causing all kinds of shit, and then when, when shit gets real, they run and hide underneath the mama hen. In this case, though, uh, they're more like velociraptors preying on people, and, and the government's like a freaking T-Rex. And, and so all little velociraptors run back and hide under the, the tail of the T-Rex. And you can see this in, in major corporations and their activities. You can see this in, in things like the freaking violent, flaming Black Lives Matter protests. The, these people act like they're anarchists. The Antifa acts like they're anarchists. But as soon as they start getting their ass whooped, they run to the police for protection. It, it, it's amazing to me that people actually think this system makes more sense than a system where people actually have to be accountable for their actions. It's interesting. I was listening recently to a, a, an interview by Michael Saylor, and this had nothing to do with anarchy. It had nothing to do with really directly with politics or anything else like that. But he was asked by the interviewer about being a public company. 
And he said, you know, I think being a public company is good. I think it it, it, it pushes discipline on you. Like there's certain you know financial reports and things like that and, and information you have to provide when you're a public company, and it makes you do it. The compliance is a good thing because it makes the company disciplined. And, you know, I was listening to that, and I'm like, so he's making a case for government in a way. And I thought, well, he's not really. Maybe he thinks he is, but he's not really. It, 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 there, is, there is a tremendous potential that since companies do lie, right, you, then you need some sort of uh, mechanism of accounting. And I don't mean financial accounting. I mean mechanism of accounting to your shareholders. So that if somebody, you know, if Rosen, Ohio is buying stock in, you know, XYZ Inc., that Rosen, Ohio can actually determine, like, does XY Inc. actually make money? What are their projections? Was Like, all these, all this reporting actually does have a value. Do you really think we need government for that? Don't you think things like the NASDAQ or S&P 500, things like don't you think they could be kind of like private clubs? that you would apply to be a member of so that your stock could be purchased, and then you got the seal of approval from the entity and the entities that did the best. Like, Do you think there's really anything that we do that can't be privatized? And then if we have a privatized solution, you can have competing privatized solutions, and you generally end up with a better solution, or at least if you think the solution sucks, you can try something else instead of the one they make you take. I was talking about this one time long ago with a guy, and he said, well, actually, I work for government. And I've got something that I do that is a valuable service, and it is needed. And I said, well, you know, it, it, it might be needed. That doesn't mean we need a government. And he said, you don't understand what I even do yet. Listen to what I have to say. So I said, go ahead and tell me. And he said, you know, when you go to a gas station, I'm like, yes, I'm familiar with their work. He goes, well, when you go to a gas station, you see a little sticker on the pump. What that pump means is that someone like me went there and made sure that when you buy a gallon of gas, that you get a gallon of gas. And if you didn't have us, those people would adjust their pump so you're getting, you know, first you get 98% of a gallon. They'd skim, you know, 2%. And then you get 95%. And they would take it as low as they could till you figured something was going on. And I'm like... So you're basically telling me your job can re be replaced with a fixed cavity. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I have a five-gallon gas can. I go put gas in it, and I know when the where the top is, and either there's five gallons in it or not. Well, you know, but then you'd have to ask, so don't you think that if there was, if that was the case, don't you think by now that auto manufacturers would have built into the cars the technology to tell you how much fuel you took on? That the fact that, that that service exists compulsory has prevented voluntary checks on that system. Do you think people don't know that that's possible? Don't you think there's a hundred technological solutions to this problem that do not involve me having to have a gun pointed at my head to pay a tax so that you can put a sticker on a, a tank? And I wasn't being hostile toward him, but it, it, it took me about 15 seconds to come up three or four private market solutions that could exist, and some of them would exist, if his job didn't exist. And I think that no matter where you go, you can do that. I don't think this is that hard. And I think that we really need to start moving at least in the direction of, let's see if we can solve our own problems before we involve the monster that is the state. With that, let's go ahead and get on into this interview today. Again, this, this young man's name is Nick Hazleton. He's been on the show at least twice before. I think it's two times. We're going to talk about niche markets, we're going to talk about farming, we're talking about business, 
We're going to talk about getting past fear and anxiety when it comes time to, uh, to, to make a sale so you can actually be successful in business and a whole lot more. With that, hey, Nick, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me back on, Jack. I'm excited. Glad to have you back. I think the first time we had you on, you were like 16 or 17 years old. It's been a few years since then. Um, and we had you on somewhere in between, but I'm sure there's people that don't know who or what a Nick Hazleton is. So can we just kind of get the uh, elevator life story up till now? Like, uh, how'd you get into what you're doing, what you're doing now, your educational path, all that good stuff? Totally. I, uh, I've been born and raised in Western Oregon, place nobody here would probably know. And, um, and uh, I've been blessed to have a rural lifestyle and just get to be close to agriculture in different ways. Um, and when I was 16, uh, actually when I was 15, I decided I didn't like school and I decided I was going to get into yaks and I, and I did. Um, I'd been around cattle a lot, thought I'd do something unique. And so I found Tibetan yaks, uh, in Bend, Oregon and I bought some and, and dropped out of school at, uh, age 16. And started pursuing that full time um, since then, and that was six years ago, uh, coming up pretty soon. Um, but I've had yaks for for about seven years now, and um, it's been quite a journey. I, yeah, I dropped out of school, started the business, and have made a lot of mistakes, and uh, and have had a lot of fun doing it. Um, yeah, I've I've done a lot of other random things too. Been on radio and and I've done some podcasting and have been involved in the kind of the libertarian anarchist spheres on the internet, but, um, pretty much I'm just doing the farm thing right now. Um, it's, I've, I've taken to really enjoy it and, um, it's nothing's quite as rewarding to me as working with animals. And, um, of course the podcasting thing doesn't make as much money either. So anyway, that's, that's where I'm at these days. I also have hogs and, um, and, uh, they're American Guinea hogs, small breed, and then mini Nubian goats. And that's pretty much what we're doing here on uh, Hazleton farms. Cool, man. So what, what has been your biggest changes? I mean, you, like I said, you were 16 or 17. I don't remember which, but you know, that's a pretty big, uh, timeline for anybody. You're talking five-ish years, six years, something like that. Uh, so people's lives change. And then when you're going from friggin' 16, 17, 18 to early twenties, there's a ton of change. So like, what's different now? Sure. Um, man, I, you know, as I'm thinking about it too, I'm just, uh, I, a lot has changed, but, um, Mainly, I, I think the comparing like where I was six years ago to now, I'm I, I just know a lot more. Um, I've I've figured out a few things, you know, working with these systems for a little bit. Things have gotten more um, more efficient and a little more smooth. I'm still working through, you know, problems that I have with keeping animals in or whatever. There's there's always fencing to build, but mainly, um, I think I have a better outlook on. It. I have a more realistic outlook on how things were. I started off as a dreamer, and now I've kind of been beaten up a little bit. And uh, I'm still, I'm still a little bit, um, I'm still hopeful for what I can do here. And uh, I'm not, I haven't lost the dream, but uh, I'm definitely taking things in a more, um, in a, more, a slower pace. You know, looking at things, um, trying to really focus on efficiency, and. Um, I think that that's mainly what has changed. Other, you know, I'm not as ideologically driven. I'm more like I'm. I'm just more involved in the uh, in the farm and the animals than I than I ever have been. So I think that's probably been the main thing that has changed is me becoming um, less interested in politics and philosophy and just more interested in the details of how do you run a homestead and how do you how do you make a business work. And um, I, I think that that's probably what. Uh, I would answer your question with Jack. 
No, I get it. I don't think there's anything that will humble a man more than livestock. Because just when you think <laughs> you've got it figured out, they're going to pull some shit on you. And it's animals in general. Here's an example. I, I recently had a workshop, had a ton of people here, and you still got to keep an eye on all your systems. So I went out to look at this is a hydroponic system, and it was strained. The, the <laughs> reserve tank was empty. Pump sitting there going, bang, like, what the hell? And so I started checking it out, and it was like a three-pipe system uh, with, like, the ones that are horizontal where you put the little neck cups in them. And uh, at the very top where you can't see, but I reach my hand in to where the drain is, and something's clogging the drain, and it's pulling on it. I finally drag it out. A freaking tree frog. Tree frog <laughs> went in there, got his face sucked in the hole, became a plug in the system, bloated and died, and caused the top pipe to overflow and drain out the system. Now, that's not the same as dealing with a yak on the attack, right? But that is an example of, like, you know, plants, you got to take care of them or they die, but they don't move. They don't change their mind. They don't have temperaments, right? Animals, like, they're like, yeah, I, that's a that's a neat, you got goats, you said, yeah, like, that's a nice mm -hmm. fence you got there. It'd be a shame if someone got over it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been there plenty of times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's that's cool. I think it's just it's, it's part of maturing as both a, a young man, but also as as a guy running a ranch. Basically, like uh, it, it, it'll take you there. So for those that didn't hear you when we talked specifically about your yaks, and they're like, "Yeah, what the hell's a yak?" You know, they kind of maybe heard of it, but they don't really know. And definitely, I'd, I if somebody said to me, "Do you know anybody raising yaks in the United States?" They'd be like, "I know this one kid. Yeah, that's it." <laughs> So what is a yak, and what the hell would you want to do with a yak? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So basically, they're a type of bovine. They're a bovine species, and they're native to uh, the Himalayas in, in Asia. They're called Tibetan yaks, um, but they're all over. I guess they call it the whole Tibetan plateau up there. But um, they're they're not from Europe or the United States, so they're not very common. But um, basically, they they look like highland cattle. No, Anybody's familiar with Scottish Highland cattle? They look the same, but they're just slender and, and more woolly. But they they look like a cow. They've got big horns and and a lot of hair. And so the main things that I I get off of them are the fiber and the meat. Meat is my main business. And meat is is remarkably lean. It's very uh, very red and very sweet in my opinion. I think it tastes more like uh, elk than it does beef. Mm. Or, or bison and definitely has, you know, quite a bit less fat. And, you know, people have, uh, their opinions on, on what makes a really good burger. And, um, I know that a lot of people, a lot of chefs don't like anything that's less than 20%, but, um, my burger is usually around 10 to 13%, uh, fat and it holds really well. I think it makes a good burger and definitely is something you can dry out. But, um, anyway, that's the meat. But, uh, otherwise they, yeah, they're just a, a small hairy cow. I think that in, Where, where they're native to in Asia, they actually tend to be bigger than here in the States. Okay. And I think that's because of inbreeding and um, what they would call like a, the phenomena island dwarfism. Yeah. So makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes them very easy to handle, in my opinion. Some people are real scared because of the horns and I don't, I don't blame them. <laughs> it's, it can be a little bit frightening when you're, when, it, when something with, with horns is staring you down. But, um, I've, I've learned how to work with them and it's not, I don't, I don't consider them very dangerous. Um, but they, uh, they're beautiful creatures and they're really, they're really fun to work with in my opinion. And the fiber is, is really nice. It's very soft, holds very well. Just like it's, I would say it's quite a bit better than wool. It doesn't have, uh, it's not as soft as like Merino 
but it's up there with cashmere um, in terms of its quality, and it's much warmer than cashmere. So uh, very interesting animals. I got into them primarily because of the versatility. I thought that if I could get meat, uh, milk, and fiber off of one animal, then I'm I'm you know replacing having to have three different herds of uh, or flocks or whatever you use. Um, because I can get my I get my wool there. I haven't been able to get any milk off them. They're not uh they're I don't work with them as much as I could, and I could get them friendlier. Um, but they're not they're not really willing to let me milk. And they have a different they have a much shorter, smaller teat and and udder than dairy cows and even goats do. Okay, so definitely a process. But anyway, that's that's them. So let's real quick before we move on from yaks. Size, I I actually always, and it's interesting you say that maybe it is a, there's only so much genetic diversity in the United States, so there's only so much breeding you can do, um, and they are smaller. But in my head, a yak was always a bigger animal than like when I first had you on and I looked at some pictures of yours and I'm like, is that a, is that a half-grown yak? Like, like, they're not really that big. Like, how big is a yak um, I, in my head, it seems like they're somewhere between like a miniature Dexter and a full-size cow, like somewhere in the middle of that. Yeah, that's about right. Not as small as a Dexter, but maybe not as large as Angus. Okay. Um, especially, definitely not as large as Angus. Um, my bull weighs about 1,300 pounds. That's pretty, and pretty he, big. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's definitely the biggest, and he's got, he's got between three and 400 pounds on all the other yaks right now. Usually the bulls can get to a thousand pounds um, in in two years, and sometimes it takes a little bit longer. It always depends on you know what they're eating, right? But um, most of my cows sit around seven to eight hundred pounds, and I think my okay. bull prince he's not quite as tall as me at the shoulders. Like I can still look above his shoulders when I'm standing next to him. Yeah. Um. So yeah, not as big as my you know as the cattle that I was used to seeing and and I'm used to seeing around here. Um, they're definitely lighter on the pasture. They have definitely, they're, they're like a more slender build for sure. Yeah. You, sometimes a little bit taller just because of that shoulder hump. But yeah, yeah. between okay. eight and 13 is like, I, I've, I've seen bulls 1600 pounds and that's, that's really impressive to me. That's a big animal period. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just, uh, I was curious because a lot of times photos don't really scale well in your mind to actual size. So they're actually bigger than I thought. Um, you decided to hell with school, to hell with the rules, which I love, and to go into farming. And there's a lot of young people thinking about going into farming, ranching, land management. What do you think a young person, since you've actually done it, uh, instead of just dream about it, considering becoming a farmer, should really think about? Yeah, it's, uh, I think this is uh, this is the question I think about the most. If what you know, what would I do if I if I turned around and did it differently? Um, I think that the main thing that I've, I've learned is it's, it's a lot of work. Um, I, I kind of had this idea that I would be this fr- farmer philosopher guy and I would write books or do podcasts or something. And, um, I, you know, I quickly realized, I, I mean, I just, I adopted too many things at once. I tried to do yaks and pigs at the same time. I should have done a little bit slower. That would be basically what I would say if you're considering getting into it is, um, yeah, it is think about, how much work it potentially could be. And if you think it's an easy thing to do, or if you're, if you're thinking, Oh yeah, no problem. I can do that. Consider getting a job on a farm, go, go work with some people who, who do this. Um, and, and especially if you're into ranching, uh, try it out, try it, really try it out. Um, I wish I had done that. You know, I had some 4-H experience and I had some other, uh, just a little bit of, 
of work on other farms. Not nothing, nothing real. Uh, nothing that really gave me a whole lot of experience. Gave me a little bit of an advantage over um, plenty of city kids, right? But um, anyway, I would have I would have taken some time. I would have spent some time with some some yak ranchers, and um, that's that's how I do it differently. And I think other things that you should consider if you're really interested in it is that it does take land. Um, you know, vegetables, I think, is a is a bit easier to manage, like we were talking about. They don't have a temperament and they don't need fencing. Yeah. Maybe you need to keep deer out or whatever. But um, that's a little bit easier than trying to keep yaks in sometimes. So um, I, I wish that I had built more fencing, too, at the beginning, mm-hmm. kind of pre- prepared and planned for it more. Um, I think that any business should be uh, thought through. And if it can't be, if it's not something that you can really factor out the numbers on, like you don't know, like I didn't know, like what can I sell a yak for? I didn't know at first. Um, I would consider taking it slow then, you know, buy a couple yaks, sell a couple yaks, and then you kind of got an idea. And then from there, scale up. Um, but I sort of thought about, I, I was thinking bigger and th- thought I could move a lot quicker than I did. Um, so I've, you know, I, I ran into some mistakes, it's not the end of the world. Um, but definitely if you're a young person looking into farming, uh, consider getting uh, some experience before you really start doing it on your own and, and consider starting out with something small. Like if you have space to do vegetables, you don't have space to do chickens, then do vegetables, grow some radishes, grow some whatever. Or, you know, if you have space for chickens, do do just a couple chickens, you know, and see how that goes. And then, and then maybe go up to 15 or whatever you do, but uh, start slow, uh, realize that it's a lot of work and that you're not going to be able to do it very quickly. Um, this, Likely. That's what's likely. Sure. Um, you know, you said you tried to do yaks and pigs at the same time. If you, if it was all equal and you went back to being 16 year old, 17 year old kid doing this again, would you, you I, I, I get the feeling you would have started with one. Do you think, and remember, you don't know what you know now, right? You had to learn it. Do you think yeah. maybe you would have started with pigs because your market is more established? Your time to grow is more like seven, eight months from a wiener to, to, you know, graduation day. Like there's a place, like if you, if nothing else, you can load pigs on a trailer and sell them or cows can go to the sale barn and like a yak is more specialty item. So do you think maybe you would have honed your skills with something more flippable or is yak movable enough that you would have started with just that? You know, that's a really good question. And, and as I'm thinking about, I've always thought if I'd start over, I'd start with beef again. <laughs> that's yeah. what I think. But, but, and then part of the reason why I'm thinking that is that I, since I raised this heritage breed that's really small, the American guinea hogs, butchers don't tend to like them. Mm-mm. I've got a couple around here that won't do them for me. Yeah. And, um, I have a hard, I can't even, I can't take them to any of the local auctions even because they're yeah. like, yeah, I know we have enough of those. But, um, but saying that that going, um, pig and you mean, something like pig red is, wattle or something like that, you would have a much yeah. larger carcass. And again, wiener to bullet in the head, you're looking at you know eight months. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what I would do if I were if I were starting over again. I would start with something that was easier to do. I wouldn't do poultry. I like large livestock. I would do pigs or I would do beef. Just and for exactly what you said is that it's something that. You know you can sell. Yeah. People know what pork is. People know what beef is. And um, I can sell yak, and I, I, I'm good at it now. <laughs> but at the beginning, it was like you had to – it was it was a gimmick. You know what I mean? Like it was like, hey, you've never had yak before. And now I've learned how to market in a different way where mm-hmm. it's – you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not 
trying to play the novelty game as much um, and trying to focus on like, hey, this is this is the best meat you could ever find just because it's um, it's because I raise it and it's because it's here and it's local and all grass fed. But um, yeah, I think I would start off with like because I was raising beef at the time. I had a 4-H deer. I would I would have done that um, maybe a couple more times mm. before I started getting into yaks if I were thinking about it again, just to have that experience because I wasn't thinking about it from this kind of, this is a food business. I was thinking about this from this, like, wouldn't it be cool to be a 16-year-old entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's, and it was, I, I learned a lot. I'm glad I did it. Like you said, it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known you know, there's no way yeah. I could have known that. Yeah. I, I learned it through doing what I did. Um, so I'm, I appreciate that. But yeah, I think if I were to go back again, I would start off slower and start off with something that's easier to sell. That's really great advice. And the, the thing I would add to it is Excel doesn't care how old you are. That is not a variable that you put, unless you're planning for your financial model going forward and when you're going to die. Excel doesn't care that you're 16 or 26 or 66, right? So uh, always sanity check your financial models with, with good Excel algorithms. Um, keep going on the same line. What do you think the basic skills or maybe the meta skills are that somebody needs to possess to be a livestock farmer? Can anybody do it? Or, you know, maybe it's more like, I often say like anybody can do it, but really no, like <laughs> there's a certain <laughs> mindset or there's a certain, uh, aptitude or what have you. Like some people are going to make really great programmers and they could also be a chicken farmer. But usually it's kind of you move one way or the other there. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree there. I think that the main thing, it's obviously, is you got to have an affinity for animals. You got to enjoy being around animals and uh, at least have some tolerance of, of smelling like shit. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's just always going to be it. Um, I've gotten to, you know, I've never been somebody that really cared a whole lot about um the way I appeared and the way I smelled. So that's been easier for me. But um, I, I really think that some people don't consider that um, before they get even just like small animals like chickens or rabbits. Like, hey, this is this thing is going to, you know, it, it has to piss and shit. And yeah. it's not on a schedule like you. It's not going to use a toilet. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it's also a, a, a fantastic resource. So please don't treat it like like it's something terrible. Right. But it's um, the people don't think about that often. And I think that. um to me, that's the most important thing is you, you, you can't neglect the animals, so you better enjoy being with them. And, you know, I've come, I've, I've made mistakes where I like, I forgot to do something for pigs and, um, and it, they wreak havoc. You know, they, animals cannot not be fed for even a day. Um, you can get away with it, you know, but you don't want to. And, um, and, and the more you let that happen, the worse it gets. And so, and I've learned that from especially pigs. If you don't, if you're not like on time and you don't do it right, um, if you, you know, spill food or something, you don't give them quite enough. They, they, it's, that's the calories they need to survive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they know that. And they know that you bring that too. And they know, and they, they sometimes could be smart enough to figure out where it comes from. So anyway, I've had a few, um, incidences where yeah i forgot to do something and now i don't i don't forget anymore because i because i've had to deal with that um yeah, so i can I think imagine kind of a pissed off yak that because you didn't feed it or a pissed off pig because like the other day i just didn't feed the ducks in the morning because they had some food in their thing and my some friends over and, and whatever and i'm like oh crap i went and grabbed a bag of feed to feed them and i was thinking they're only ducks but gee i hope i don't trip because they were pissed they were like what the hell <laughs> 
You know, and I can imagine, you know, a, a sonder of pigs, like, you didn't feed us, asshole. Uh, yeah. Pigs have been known to eat people, so, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, that's something you really got to pay attention to, and, and uh, yeah, I think the main thing there is you, you, you got to really enjoy animals and working with them. And another thing is, is patience. It's like, you got to, you got to be able to understand that these animals don't think like you do, and, um, and sometimes they're going to they're going to act weird. Like we, we just, we're building a new milk parlor and we just put concrete on, on the ground floor that it used to just be gravel for the goats where, where we milk them. And since we've changed that, uh, they just have a weird, they're just something off about their environment. They won't hop on the stands. They'll come out and walk on the new concrete, but they won't hop on the milk stands. And like what has changed? You know, we added, the only thing that's changed is we added some concrete on the floor. It's up three inches or whatever. And, and, and it totally throws them off and you can't just like get mad at it, try to force it on the stand because then it becomes a traumatic event for it. And it's like, well, why is he doing this to me? He doesn't understand that, uh, that you're just trying to do this on time. You know, it's got other things that it's working on trying to make sure that it, it survives. Um, so I think that that's an important lesson to learn is that animals don't work on a human level. They work on their level. And, and sometimes you gotta, you gotta have some patience um to be able to to move them you know i've definitely missed like a couple uh i've you know butchers have I, have been very lenient for me but every once in a while you're late to something just because you can't you couldn't get the animals to move yeah and um you have to there's nothing you can do about it you can make your systems as efficient as possible and make and learn about the animal psychology and set up the situation as best as you can but it's like anything any slight thing could could throw off, especially ruminant animals. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely the case that at times, you know, uh, they just they don't like change. They just yeah, you know, that it's not the way it was yesterday. So I'm pissed now, and I don't want to do the thing that I'm supposed to do. I think the other thing is on on that skill set there, and you kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, you know, having the affinity for and liking working with animals and the tolerance. I think there's a there's a line between having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore, and actually realizing, I don't like this. I don't like caring for animals this way. I don't like this lifestyle. And I think that's probably the biggest thing because, you know, it is a business. And, and so in the end, it's a way to do something that you care about, that you believe in, and to make money, Right. So if you end up like, this is not the thing I want to spend my life doing, I think then there are so many ways to do that today. There's no reason to choose something you don't really enjoy. So I think you know having a, a, a joy associated with animal care, I think, is really important if you're going to do it long term. Otherwise, you might as well go get a, a job programming computers or bouncing people out of bars or whatever. Totally, totally, because that's, I mean, that's, that's what it is. You're taking care of animals. <laughs> so if you don't like the the actual the actual work, then yeah, I'd, I'd suggest find something else. And that's something I found is like I, through doing this, I I just I, I didn't really imagine myself as somebody who really liked the farming lifestyle and sort of thought, well, this is something I just have to do a couple cho hours of chores every day and then I'm free for the rest of the day. It's not how it turned out. And and pretty quickly I kind of realized that's not too bad. I actually like this. It's not a. It didn't. Um, I'm sure I had some issues when I was young, kind of still growing up. Um, but yeah, I, I found that I really enjoy it. I like feeding pigs. 
every day and I just enjoy the routine. There are things about it that I am trying to make better and more efficient, right? But um, that, I think that's an important thing you said there is knowing the difference between I, I hate this and like, ah, oh, man, this is this this isn't what I want to do exactly right now, but um, I'm going to appreciate it afterwards. You know, one of the reasons when I got your app and I saw who it was from, I didn't even really read your proposal. I just said, sure, I'll have you on again, is because at 16, you made a decision to do something a little crazy because it's what you wanted to do. So you just effing did it, right? And, you know, I talk to people that are like him and Han about taking a shot at something in their late 20s, early 30s. And like, you know, you're burning your freaking dash. And what it always comes down to is fear. It comes down to anxiety. Uh, people get paralyzed from taking an action to actually change their life or grow their life. But everybody that gets through it deals with it. There's always this like, should I really do this? Do I, do I really want to spend $10,000 on a Bitcoin? Do I really want to go all in on, you know, taking care of animals? Do I really, you know, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter. And you have to get to that point where you say, okay, I'm out of line and I'm either going to jump or not. How did you deal with things like that, specifically the, the anxiety or the fear or the, the the concern that maybe this is a bad decision. Sure, and, and it, it, that there was definitely some fear and anxiety. I had a lot of feedback that was like, "Hey, this is a bad idea, kid. Don't do it." <laughs> yeah, and um, I I you know, part of it is I'm I'm rebellious and an iconoclast. I've ne I've always been a skeptical person, and that definitely lends itself. But it also it is also bring you know being skeptical can also bring out a lot of issues i'm always thinking about like what could go wrong what can i do or what 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 uh yeah what could go wrong and so i'm i've always kind of dealt with that to a degree and i think it's something that you know you you do have to you do have to recognize it um but for me it's like you have to weigh your priorities of like you know you have to you have to think about it it's like if if you're anxious you know typically that means you're thinking about something but think about the anxiety you know think about why are you feeling this way and, and what happens if you don't do this and uh and i think that that's kind of instead of just like trying to hide from the the questions and, and the worries that i had is like i had to embrace it because partly it's because i had people i had to answer to you know i could i my folks wanted me to do something they didn't want me to just drop out of school and do nothing and um <laughs> yeah and, or you know play video games or whatever and and so i i had I kind of had that pressure to make it work, but I really, really wanted it. Um, and that's something that I decided. I had a, something happen to me, and I won't get into You can go on my podcast and find the stories about who I, why I became exactly who I am. But um, I had a traumatic event in my life, and I decided I'm, I'm not going to I'm not gonna die at a young age and feel like I didn't do something. Mm. Um, so that's why I did it. It's the main priority. It's like I, I need to do something with my life, and I think that raising animals is something that really means something to me. So I did it, and that was the thing. It's like if I didn't do this, um, I was going to be in school, and uh, I was going to hate it, and I was going to I was going to hate what I was doing with my life. And so that's where I think if you if you're in a situation where you're like, yeah, I don't know what I should do, think about like what you know, really, really take some time and think about what is where is this going to get you, both if I jump or if I don't, because and often what I found is if you don't jump, it's a lot worse because that that anxiety doesn't go away it's like you're you still have a d decision most of the time and it's like well you know for me it's like they thought about dropping out of school until i did it and and i think that that's where i've kind of learned to make some of those decisions as if i feel passionate about it i think about it a lot um and so if i really really want to do it then then i've learned that 
I, I better do it. And, and sometimes I still now come into situations where I feel anxiety. Like yesterday, I made a, I made my first grocery store sale. It was just awesome. I've got a, a, the first alternative co-op, the North Store in Corvallis, Oregon. If you're there, go ahead, go and find Hazleton Farm Jackie. But I was nervous about it. Um, and, and, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't get to ask all the questions I wanted to of the people, you know, I wanted to know more. And, um, that's the way it goes. And, and I know that I'll have another opportunity, um, to do it again. But anyway, if I hadn't called them, if I hadn't just been, cause I, anyway, I don't want to, I'm going to say too much, but basically, you know, I, I had talked to them before and, um, they said they were interested in, and I just wasn't really ready to give them the amount that they wanted, um, a couple of years ago. Now I'm at the point and I've been holding on to like, I, I just picked up meat last week. And so I've been thinking about, Oh, I'm going to do this. And I built it up in my head. You know, I just kept thinking about calling these people. And so I put it off a couple of days yeah. just cause I was a little bit scared. And then I was like, one day I was like, dude, you get, you got the meat. Let's go. Let's make some money. Let's do this. Let's, let's do something cool. Cause that's a big milestone for me. Um, but so I did it and yeah, I was nervous and I didn't, I, you know, I, I could have been, I feel like I, I could have been more confident. I could have, uh, gave a better impression, but it's like, you know, it's COVID time. So we're both wearing masks and it's a weird situation. So yeah. you take it as it goes and you just gotta like, sometimes things don't go the way you want them to exactly, but, uh, you learn, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. That, that you can work through the anxiety and work with the fear because it's there for a reason. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something that can help you, but it's like, don't, yeah, just don't let it paralyze you. Yeah. Sales is a, is a tough thing, but it's an easy thing. It's, it's tough to get through it, but once you do, it's, it's remarkably easy because whatever number of sales you need to make for a quarter, a month, a year, whatever it is, you just need to know how many no's you need. That, that's really the formula. So like if you know your close rate, is 20%, that means for every two yeses, you need eight noes. So you don't even worry about the yeses. You just go on total numbers of qualified leads, and then you just hammer it out, and every time you get a no, you're like, great. That one's off the list. I don't have to talk to these people no more, at least not till maybe next year. I'll take another swing at them. And when I used to do sales training, I would have you know all these salespeople in a room together, and I'd be like, okay, everybody turn to the person you know on your left or right, and and just look at each other, and you every kind of pairs up. And, okay, now I want want one of you to tell the other one no, no. Okay, now I want the other one to do it. No. Okay, great. All right. So is anybody bleeding? <laughs> you know, and everybody would laugh. You know, like nobody's bleeding. Okay, yeah. You know, and but like when I started in sales, I was in technical sales, and I would have to call. Oh, a good 30 cold calls a day to set enough appointments, you know, uh, for a week over time that would, that would make me able to, to get enough closes to, to make my quota and to make some real money. And I hated it. And one day I was in the gym, you know, and I was working out and I had my freaking lifting gloves and all on and you, you're freaking just pounding weights and you get up and you just feel like, oh, I could kick somebody's ass right now. You know, you kind of get that <laughs> natural endorphin rush. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This is who I need to be when I make it. Like so, I'm like I'm going to make my calls at from 9:30 to 10:30 every morning. I'm going to take that one hour as my cold call time. I'm going to lock my freaking office door, tell my manager to piss off, don't bother me. And I, I threw some big heavy dumbbells in my office. And about 15 minutes before I'd call, I'd work out by dumbbells. I had a freaking full length mirror on my freaking wall, and I'd get all jacked like I was going to kick somebody's ass. <laughs> I call people and like, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about your network. Oh, you don't want to talk to me? Screw off. Next. And it was like as soon as that switch fell. Like, my numbers went through the roof. And it wasn't because I got less no's. It was because I got more. And that's a really hard thing because we become so emotionally involved. We, like, 
we start intellectually masturbating about this one account or this one store, like it'd be great if I got in there. And you start to realize like there's thousands of opportunities and I need to start weeding through them. And then, you know, you pick up a couple lesser ones than that target you had. You call that target back and you say, I'm, you know, I'm working with A, B, and C. I'd like to talk to you about how we can work with you. I'll say, oh, wait, wait a minute. Like now you're working with my competitors, right? These little upstarts. And then they want to talk to you. And so like, To me, that's a way to get by it, but I think we all have our way. Like, not everybody feels that way when they work out. Some people, when they work out, feel like, damn, I want to be done, right? If that's how you feel, you need something else. But there is some part of all of us that has kind of this, I'm going to go out and freaking kick ass, and that you have that in you, and whatever it is that puts you in touch with that, you know, like, you know, my opinion was if the door's closed, I take the hinges off, I'm coming in anyway, we're going to talk. And, and I know that sounds like, over the top, but it is what separates winners from losers in that market. And, you know, in, in your case, honestly, you only need to do that so much and you've got everything sold. Like you have a quantity side issue at, at that point. Right. And that's what I find is that, and I get out of practice, you know, because like, I'm, I, I have a, an off season sometimes where yeah. I'm not selling and then I get nervous about it again. But you're right. It's it's the nose. It's like at the farmer's market, you just keep waving at people, waving at people and smiling until somebody makes eye contact. And then you say something, right? And it's like how many people are just going to ignore you as they walk by? You got to get used to it. You know what you um, need? You need a tame-ass yak, like like a complete yeah. like doofus yak that just stands there. There's this uh, – down in Fort Worth, they have this giant longhorn steer that's like – he's like a baby. They must have like raised him from a calf, like cuddled him like a baby. And you could pet him. He just sits there. People get up on top of him, take pictures. You need like a yak like that that can just stand in your booth at the farmer's market. Because That'd every be freaking person would be like, what the hell is that? Like, <laughs> hey, you want to taste him? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Promotion, That would be man. fun. Yeah. yeah. It's One probably time not realistic, I... but it, is, it, would, it would work if it was. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I wish the yaks were tame enough. I've I've taken one in like a small pen. I had a horse trailer, and, mm -hmm. and she she couldn't stand it. She was very yeah. upset. So I, I didn't do it again, but I'm hoping that one of these days I'll have some time to, to bottle raise a calf. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've tried doing that. That's very difficult. Um, I've only taken abandoned ones, so they, they didn't end up surviving. Um, but anyway, point, but, but I'd love to do that sometime because I think it'd be so fun. And yaks are so pretty. They're like, people love, love seeing them. I think that would be, I think that would be awesome. I've used, uh, hides before. I use that as like my tablecloth. And that can be a little bit of a turnoff for some people. Yeah. <laughs> They look at me like, what are you, what do you have here? Yeah. And, uh, It's an interesting business trying to do that, uh, trying to like play up the, the, um, the unique factors of yak. Yeah. Uh, been very, very interesting. And it seems like the foodies though, they, foodies love it. The restaurants and the chefs, they've, they've been really impressed with what I have. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Doesn't mean I can always make that sale because it's all about margins, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where I've been picky with people. I've been, I've been lucky to be in a position where I don't have much product and I can, Well, you know, you know, that, that, I don't know if you can say that's lucky or not. I don't have enough product to make, make this sale is kind of what I'm saying, but, it, but it means that I get to choose my margins to a degree too, where, um, yeah, I just, I don't sell for most of what, uh, chefs think they can, they can do for yeah. anyway. 
But that's something like you really like if you are a foodie restaurant, you want to have some shit like that on your menu. Because I know when I walk into a place like that, you know, they can say whatever they want about chicken or Chilean sea bass or whatever, and it might be a fantastic presentation. But I'm like, I can I can make freaking chicken at home. I don't need chicken. I buy chicken at a restaurant. You know, but when you walk in and it's like they have like elk or they have yak or something, you know, reindeer or something like, well, that's what I'm going to order because I can't just go get that anywhere. And so I think that that is really great about a niche market. And I think the other side of it is like foodies are often they're either pretentious or they're just people like me. I'm kind of a foodie myself. So you have the ones that want to impress everyone. But then you have people like me that like when I have friends come over, I like to provide them something that I know they can't make for themselves. So like both sides of that niche, the person that just really digs cool, weird stuff Uh, or unusual things or things you can't just get or the people that just want to be like during my dinner party I served braised jack right like both of those are good markets so you have something that maybe is a little more it requires a bit more education to market in some instances or has less buyers but you have enthusiastic buyers yeah no totally and I think that's exactly what I see um, I've got you know a collection of people who come back and and they that's typically who they are. It's people who, you know, they, they wait until they're going to have a dinner party and they say, Oh, hey, next week I've got some guests coming over. Give me your best top sirloin steak. And I'm like, All right, you got it. Um, and that's, I think that, and I like that, that market and that business is, is fun to do. I, I sometimes feel bad because I'm like, Oh, I, I'm a farmer so I can raise food and feed people. But if I'm charging such a high premium, you know, how many people am I actually feeding versus just, you know, giving a unique experience to? But it's like, you know, you, you can't get idealistic about it. It's like, oh man, I wish I was, I was the farmer guy feeding every, everybody who could, who didn't have food. It's like, well, that doesn't make money, right? That's not, that's not, um, that's not your job and it's not the position I'm, I'm in to be able to make that easily. You know, I live too far out of town and I've, I'm, no matter what, I'm going to have, uh, some costs to it. So anyway, my, my thought has always been like, oh, I wish I was, able to be more charitable with the meat but i'm i'm i do as much as i can and um well, really how, how it's, it's a very you, you are using unique a, thing you're using a premium niche product which is shepherding land that might otherwise be lost or not put into full pastoral production right like if you were trying to make a go with a small number of, of cattle or something like that selling at a lower price It'd be more difficult to do. You have a ramp up time. There's like so much that you're, if you want to look at like the giving back aspect, the, the improvement of the land, and then knowing that you'll be able to remain a steward of land because you make the land profitable. So, like, you know, we're, we're, you're, you're not in the business of giving flowers to orphans, right? You're in the business of making the land pay while honoring the value of the land itself. And that's, that's noble. So, you don't need to feel like you have this, like, you know, obligation to give away a premium product at a loss because then you can't stay in business. You know, right. that, that's, I, you can't do it. And I, I appreciate that. You know, it's one of these thoughts that comes in my head. I don't know if it's like the, the, the Christian Puritanism or something in my mind that just like, I just want to be friendly. I want to be nice. But you're right. And, and I do. I'm, you know, I, I find my other opportunities. You know, I, I, it is my job. Like if I, I couldn't do anything if I didn't have this. Um, if I didn't have the yaks, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to live here. Um, and do the things I'm doing. So, and, 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 you know, with what I, I think I'm providing a very, a very valuable service to this land and the, and the ecosystem around me. It's, it's fun to have seen how things have changed. 
um, since I've kind of taken over the management and, um, have allowed things to just kind of do their, their stuff. My, my folks, uh, like to mow lawns and then my cousins used to lease land and they graze cattle, but they didn't do a whole lot. And now you can see like the ecosystem is developing. Like there's mm. some succession happening. Yeah. And it's only been, you know, three or four years where I've been like on the permaculture thing and really, really paying attention. But it's cool to see that the way the water has moved, like I have, like I haven't dug any swales really, but, um, you can see how the contour is slightly changed just because of the, of the, the management of the, of the pastures and, and where I've been mulching hay and stuff, like feeding out. So any, but, but, you know, you're right. Like, I don't, I don't know why I have, there's, this plays into the anxiety thing, right? We all have these ideas in our head about things we should do. And, and sometimes we don't know why. Um, but you got to think about it. And you gotta try and understand why. So that you, cause there's little things like that that hold me up, that keep me from making a sale or keep me from feeling uh, good about what I'm doing sometimes. And you need to like, you need to talk to people and, and get the feedback from others, but also just like think through these things and remember what you're doing. Cause it's not, I'm not, I'm not giving <laughs> flowers to orphans, as you said, right? It's, um, you know, if I can, that's awesome, but these aren't flowers. These aren't something that, uh, these are something that took me uh, a decent amount of time and it's an yeah. animal's life. So it's, it's something that's a bit more valuable than something you can just give away. Well, I and would put don't... it this way too. Like if you want cheap food, there's tons of it, right? There's tons of cheap food out there and we see the health of the American population due to it. So we, the last thing we need is more cheap food. We really we don't need more cheap food. Now we what we need is quality, affordable food. But that's that's a consumer problem. That's not a, a, a delivery problem from from our end, right? Like, it's not my job to make sure you can afford eight dollars for my duck eggs. It's my job to make sure my market understands why. Yes, you can buy a dozen shitty irradiated chicken eggs in the store for a dollar and sixty cents, but you should buy my product. And if you don't want to. That shitty product exists. It's over there. You can go get it in that system. You know, my concern is ethical care of my animals, ethical treatment of my land, and a premium product that costs a premium price. And never apologize for that because, you know, we all make our decisions about what we're going to produce. And, you know, I'll, I would say that, you know, the people building Corvettes don't feel bad that people can't afford them. <laughs> they build the Corvette for the person that says, you know what I want? I want a freaking American muscle car. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes, you know, from a standpoint of adjusting my life so I can afford that. And so they build Corvettes for people that want Corvettes. You provide a premium meat product for people that want a freaking premium meat product. There's nothing wrong with that. So anyway... um, I also kind of want to just talk to you about the fact that, like, what you're doing is a unique business. Therefore, it requires passion both in what you do and, like, in evangelizing it as well, like telling other people about it, gaining customers, et cetera. And there's a balance there you have to, like, to, to maintain where you don't, like, appear real self-absorbed or you don't, like, get to the point where people get what we used to call in sales, tell them I died syndrome. Like, oh, it's that guy again. <laughs> like, I don't just tell him I'm dead. You know, I actually heard a guy say that in the background one time. Tell him I died. Uh, you know, like, so how do you balance that so that you, you are passionate, you are making the case for what you do, but yet you're not turning people off? Sure. And, and, and part of it is like, you got to have some people skills to be able to read people and see when they're disinterested. But, um, the main thing for me is I, I try to, I, and I've, and this is something I do think I've struggled with. Like, I, it's easy for me to, 
make conversation with, oh, hey, I'm Nick Hazleton, the yak farmer. And people are like, oh, what's a yak farmer? And so that's, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of conversations that I have with people go that way. But I've, I've been trying to like learn as I'm, when I'm not trying to make a sale, like just practice like talking to people without that and say, yeah, I'm a farmer. And sometimes I don't mention that I raise yaks. Most of the time I do, but you know, sometimes I don't just so that I, I feel like I have that, that practice. But, um, and, and that's just like with meeting people in general. I think when it comes to like sales and trying to like, it's really like you do have to take a chance that, you know, especially if you're at a farmer's market, it's like, that's fair. You can, you can call people from the street and be like, Hey, you ever had yak meat? That's, you're in the farmer's market. I think that's fair. But when you're out and about and you're like just trying to like, you're just schmoozing or whatever, um, I think that there's just some, some tact that you can take and it's a little bit of a balance where you don't just like, you, you just realize that, uh, don't talk too much, too much about yourself and, and try to ask a lot of questions. And that's what I've learned is that you can, if you can kind of keep people talking, like you can, you can find something that they're interested in and then bring it back to what you would like to talk about. And, um, it's not that hard to do and still be, interested in the conversation you know what i mean like and that's what i've learned is just that you can't you just gotta like you're talking to a person you know this person has feelings and they have interests and and you can figure that out and figure out how that connects back to what you're doing and sometimes it's too hard and you move on you just like hey you just had a conversation with somebody and it's just like you said like with no's you just you know you talk to as many people as you can and, and you know the rate at which um you could try to make these sales but i think in general with with advertising um you know, I try to take the opportunities where it's like, hey, this is my chance to talk. And I'm on an interview on the survival podcast and I can talk about yaks and not really have to care so much because this is about me. And I think that there's different situations that provide different context for that. So I think if you're making sales, you do got to take a little bit of a, a risk and be like, hey, I do this and I would like to help you out with, you know, that. Yeah. But what really, really helps is asking people about themselves and being like, hey, you know, an easy one at the farmers. Have you ever had yak me before? No, but that's, I guess that's sort of, that's ruined my, my that didn't fit what I was trying no. to say. <laughs> I guess it's like, how are you doing? What do you do for a living? And they say, well, I'm an engineer and I know some engineers. I'm like, oh, you, what kind of engineering you do? You do mechanical. Well, you know, what's interesting about mechanical engineering. I actually use some of that when I'm building a fence and maybe it's not that cut, yeah. you know, not that dry, right? Yeah. But you learn the tact and, and you just got to have conversations with people and, and take the feedback and not take it like, oh, man, that person thought I was an idiot. There's definitely people I've talked to who are like, that kid was an idiot. <laughs> and um, you just move on. You know, maybe you'll have another chance to prove yourself. But like you just you can't worry about that. You know, I mean, I think that like there's a balance there because you do want to basically tell everybody you meet that's a new contact what you do because you have no idea who you're talking to. And you have no idea that this guy that's an engineer or, you know, scrapes bubblegum for a living or whatever, has an uncle that, that owns, like, the most prestigious restaurant within 50 miles of you or whatever it is in your particular case. And, like, they might not even seem like they're interested, but they kind of remember that. And then, you know, they're at their uncle's drinking a beer, and he's like, yeah, I'm really looking for something new and cool to put on the menu. And they're like, I just met this kid that farms yaks, right? And he was on and on about yak meat. And then all of a sudden you're getting a phone call from somebody going, well, because this could happen. You get a phone call from somebody and say, well, how much can you provide? And they might be like, well, what if you had an investor partner, right? Like that kind of shit happens just because somebody tells somebody that knows somebody, right? So, but you have to balance it. But I think your technique is exactly what I always used to do. You ask about them first. And if you, you don't even ever have to like try to get what you do into that conversation. Unless you're talking to a completely self-absorbed 
asshole who's going to be of no help to you anyway, if you start having that conversation, eventually that person's going to be like, well, what do you do? And as soon as they do that, now you have permission. Now you're not being a dick. Now you're not, you know, verbally in, you know, forcing your, in, your, your, your concepts on them. They're asking, and it's a natural thing. And I remember a study by this psychologist. He flew back and forth from L.A. to New York like eight times. So that was like eight different people that sat next to him in first class, and he had a conversation with every one of them. And, you know, what do you do? Like, basically, he asked them questions and listened very intently. And they, then he had like a third party interview these people. And they said, what do you think of the guy that sat next to you on the plane? And they were all like, he's one of the most amazing, fascinating people that, that I've ever met. They all said some version of that. And then he said, they, they said, well, what's his name? None of them knew his name. They thought he was fascinating. They didn't even know his name. Because the conversation was mostly about them. We, we all like to hear about ourselves, right? So, um, But that is a really basic sales technique. Just, you know, who are you? What do you do? You know, what are you doing here? No, you know, that, like basic conversational skills. And you will get asked. And then, like, when you say, oh, you know, I run a little ranch and, uh, you know, I, I take care of yaks. Well, the next question is going to be either, you know, how'd you get into that or what the hell's a yak? Right? So that conversation will lead itself. It's not even, it's not even difficult. It's, a, it's such a unique niche that it, it opens doors. Totally. And, and, and a lot of the time people will, they're, they're faster than I am. They'll ask me soon. And it's like, and, and, and you don't got to worry about it. Just, just answer, you know, yeah. keep making the conversation. And I think that's the key is like conversate. And, and, and truthfully, most, I think most of my sales have come from word of mouth. Maybe farmers markets have beat, beat that just because of the amount of time I've been at some of them. But, um, yeah. um, typically like, like it's, it's funny how that works. Like, You know, you just you just be a nice guy to your neighbor, and then a year later, they're like, "Oh yeah, I've got a restaurant friend. I just I should have let you know about that." And and I, I'll give them a good word, and and then it's yeah. like, "Hey, there you go. Somebody's interested." And you know, I haven't made that that restaurant sale yet, but um, but I I get chefs from people because they're interested. You get the door open, and like you know, some of those people might be like, "You know, I'm gonna watch this kid and make sure he doesn't like kill himself, kill his yaks, or quit." And if he does it long enough. Then, then I'll make that introduction. But I, you know, I'm I'm very guarded with introductions like that, right? Like if somebody's established enough that I can look at it and go, okay, yeah, they can do their, they can do what they say they do, fine. But if there's somebody really new to something, I'll sit back and, you know, I'll I'll offer my influence of, to help, but only once I believe, like it's not going to bite me in the ass because that's like when you have influence, the last thing you want is to make a recommendation and then have the person you recommended fall off on you. Like that's that's. That's like that damages your relationship, and you got nothing for it, right? Like it's not like I'm, I'm like a, if I'm a commission salesman for you, okay, I'm gonna go try to sell the product, and if I lose confidence in your ability to deliver, I'm gonna stop selling, but I'm not gonna worry that I've you know damaged a, a relationship. But when I just know you, and then I know Bill, and Bill's brother is a chef at say blah 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 blah, right? Like I'm not leveraging Bill to get in with his brother at say blah blah. Until I know that, like, that's not, I'm never going to hear a negative thing. All I'm going to hear is, man, I'm so glad you introduced me to Nick. And so I think that, like, being patient with those types of relationships is really important, too. That's a good point. That's a good point. And that's something that I haven't really thought about. But it's, 
I think that's interesting. Like I've, I've had some of this like young man syndrome that wants help. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm like, why, why hasn't, why hasn't Jack Spirko reached out to me? You yeah. know, it's, I'm sure I've had that thought when I was younger. It's nothing that I, you know, it's nothing I care about anymore. I've realized that like yeah. people have lives and, and if you're not involved in them, then why would, why, why would somebody care? You know, and I have audience members too, where it's like, yeah, it's like, I don't, you might know me, but I don't know you. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it's something you do have to recognize that, yeah, like you, especially, Jay, you're in a position where a lot of people look up to you. And if you're just like, yeah, check out this yak kid. This is really, really cool. You know, you give, <laughs> you've given me, you know, you know, interviews. That's, a, that's a plenty of press. That's really, really cool of you to do. And I, and I really appreciate just that. Um, but yeah, if you would go off about it, like, that's just not, a, that's not smart because first of all, I'm, I am young and dumb and I've made some mistakes and I am occasionally, I'm getting a lot better at it now. Uh, but sometimes I miss the mark. You know, I miss it. I, I, it's like, oh, you, you sent in an order to me and then I, uh, it slipped through my cracks, right? So I, I'm getting better at that. But you know, it's a reputation that you do have to carry. And I have people that are like, yeah, the kid's cool, but you know, he never, he never texted me back. And that's, and, and yeah, that's a problem that I have that'll to fix. Hurt. Yeah, you got to systemize things to where they don't fall because the system requires that they be addressed, right? So you, you, like that's something you have to sort out on your own. Now, one thing you have as an advantage now is you are still young as shit, which is really great. So when you're talking to somebody and and you know you know they're a potential contact or a potential customer, like I would lead with, yeah, I've been running a yak farm for about five years now. Yeah. Right. Because that's totally different than I farm yaks, right? If I'm looking at somebody that's 22 and they tell me they're a yak farmer, I'm like, yeah, what a yak off, right? Like, <laughs> like, but when I, when I'm looking at a 22 year old kid that says I've been managing my own yak farm for five years, well, fuck, I want to know. I want to know how you're still doing it. I want to know how you survived. And I also understand that, like, even if you're still feeling some stuff out, like. I'm not going to call you tomorrow and you decided to go off and chew bubble gum, right? Like, <laughs> like this is, this is something that's still going on. Like I even use that now at this point in my career, when I, when I go out after a vendor and I want to bring them in as one of my discount providers, I tell them I've been running my program for 13 years because that immediately, I'm not some jag off that, 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 you know, emailed them that got an idea yesterday of this great thing I'm going to do. It's like 13 years. So shit. Okay. That means tomorrow this is still going to be a thing. And that's also, like, a lot of their concerns, like, I found out, like, a lot of people, well, what if my discount code gets out in the open? Well, freaking change it, right? Like, like, you had to give these, spoon feed these people the most obvious freaking answers. And, like, by the way, don't you think that you should be making sure this is profitable? I didn't ask you for charity. If, if like, a million people buy your shit, shouldn't you be happy? But as the program matured and you can say I have, you know, 70 vendors and I've been doing this for 10 years, 13 years, whatever, they get to the point where, like, well, shit, I, I'm not worried about that. Because if that was a problem, those people wouldn't be there for that long. So that's your story now. Is you actually have a track record. You actually have longevity. And you don't have to be like, I am the greatest Jack farmer that ever lived. You can just be like, yeah, I've been doing this for five years, six, whatever it is. you know. And immediately your age becomes an advantage. Because what the fuck? Like he's 25 years, 17, he started ranching and he's still doing it? Like that's Then you, you're setting yourself apart from your cohorts. Totally. And, and that's something that I do. I do really, uh, you know, the, the perseverance is something that's, that really has meant a lot to me and my own, like building my own confidence. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm dedicated to this and, and I don't, and I'm, and now I'm getting to the point where I don't have to say it so much. Right. Um, it's, it's, I've shown it too. Um, 
but yeah, I think that's, I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I think that's what I'm trying to recognize is, is that I, I've got a, I've got a good position here and it's, it's difficult. You know, I do, I, I guess I, I do feel like I should say like, I'm, I'm, I'm I come from a, a, not a super wealthy background, but I've got a safety net. Yeah. Um, so I'm not super worried, but I am in debt and I am like, you know, I've got some, I'm not in deep, you know, I'm not, yeah. I, I've got the stuff figured out. Um, but my lifestyle is, is very cheap. You know, I don't get to do, and I'm sure you know what this is like being a homesteader. I don't get to do a lot of things that other people have the luxury for. And people often, like I've had several people in my life recently, just friends that have, have, who don't know me that well, but, um, say like, oh man, if I had your, if I was in your position, Nick, I'd be set off and I'd laugh. I'm yeah. just like, yeah, I, I, I bet you wish. I bet you think so. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, I've got a nice, you know, very great situation, right? But it's a lot of work. And and it is something that I could easily fail at, or uh, maybe not easy, but you know, th- I could make mistakes and this could go wrong. Yep. And um and really is it and and I have I should say I have made mistakes and it has gone wrong, and uh, and I and I stick through it because I really enjoy this, like I really want this lifestyle. So anyway, I think that's something. But if people are considering, oh, do I want to do this? Consider that that it has taken a lot of time for me to get to a point now where I can comfortably comfortably make these like restaurant sales and grocery sales. And as I said, I was a little nervous, but like, yeah, it's, it's taken time to get to the point where I'm at and, and it'll take more time to get to where I want to go. So, but you're fucking 22. So what? I mean, like, let's say it had all right. crashed and burned. So what? What better time to take a shot? And even if this didn't work, like everything you learned doing it would have taken you somewhere else, like, and, and allowed you to do something else. Like when you were talking about people, Telling you that's a bad idea or whatever, I was thinking, what a bunch of fucking losers. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just how you, like, shut up. Like, like, you're telling this kid who has a dream who's willing to take a shot at it that it's a bad idea, and you probably ain't never done shit. Like, it's, yeah. it's, like, no. it's the old classic thing. If you're gonna tell your friends, hey, I'm gonna buy and open a restaurant, buy a building and open a restaurant, they tell you what a dumbass you are, right? But if you say, hey, I bought a restaurant and it's opening on Wednesday, then they all want to be on the freaking VIP list to get in. Right, oh, like, yeah, oh totally. yeah, like, you know, I did some pretty good promotion, and I got a bunch of VIPs coming in, and like, we're having this big opening, and all. And they're like, well, why the hell didn't you tell me about it? Can I get on the guest list? Like, immediately because you've done it. But when you're gonna do something, and I know I kind of sounded mean toward them, but they're actually they think they're helping, right? They they, they probably aren't, but they feel like they're protecting you or something. And part mm-hmm. of it is I think a lot of people never take a risk, and then they need to in their minds, convince themselves that they made the right choice by by not taking a risk. Because what the hell risk is there in trying to start a business as a 16- or 17-year-old kid and failing? And the answer is there's none. There's no real long, unless like your business is going to be running cocaine across the Mexican border, like there is no real risk. So what? You go bankrupt. People do it every day. You have no friggin' credit anyway at that age. So exactly. So what? So what? So you you dropped out of school. So what? Go get a GED. If you decide you want to go to Harvard, you can get into Harvard with a GED. In fact, you're probably more likely to. You can pretend you're poor and you need help, right? Like so. Like there's yeah. always a way to spin an angle. And the younger you are, the more time you have. So like, take the shot, young man. That's that's. I'm glad you did it. And the people that told you not to, they can screw. And then the people that tell you that you've got it made that have not done the work, they can also go screw, and they have no idea how much work still lies ahead of you. But what will happen is, you know, you'll be 30 years old, you'll be leasing land to expand your operation, you'll have, you know, Hazleton's Yak Farm selling freaking tons of yak meat to all the upper-end restaurants across the country, and people are like, oh, you're lucky. 
That that's that's your probable future in some way. Um, wrapping up though, you have like a unique niche as an entrepreneur. You're selling an exotic meat, an exotic product. Do you think that's kind of like is it necessary? Is it advantageous? Is it the best approach? Or like is it depend on the person? Like because going broad and being simple and doing beef that works too. Yeah, and, and we kind of talked about this earlier. And I think if like if I started over again, that's what I that's the advice I would give a younger person. But it is always unique, right? Like there's like I'm like straight out. I'm just I'm the kind of kid that has to learn the hard way. Like I I had to drop out of school and learn this stuff with my hands. So and sometimes yeah, maybe you're that person and you got to do it right. Um, and like you said, it's like you're young, jump off, go, 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 go for it. But I think that from the niche side of business, like, and, and you, you're kind of like, you kind of changed my opinion here, Jack. Like I was sort of thinking like, yeah, I, I think it's like from, and I was, but I was thinking from this idealistic sort of thing. Like, you yeah. know, I told you I'm a dreamer, right? So, but like, like from a real, from, from my like idea sense, I'm like, well, we need more farmers. We need more young farmers. So maybe we should have, and, and more like available food, but. I think what you said is actually is actually right. Where it's like depending on where you're at, it depends. But if you're in a if you're in beef country, if you're in Kansas in the Midwest, maybe don't raise beef. You know, like maybe you don't need to do that. And like my, like I know a lot of people who um, have gotten into the farming thing, and, and I think the smart ones have gone more towards the poultry. Um, you know, a lot of these kids that I know, uh, just a little bit older than me, or a little younger than me now, um, they've done really well pasturing poultry. And I think that that could be a really easy thing to do. But then if, you know, if you're in Oregon, don't try to compete with me. Uh, you know, <laughs> maybe it's not a good, there's, there's three people in this state that sell yak meat. Okay. Um, and, and it's, and we kind of cover the, the different areas. So Guy and Ben covers that central Oregon and kind of Portland area. And then I kind of have most of the valley. And then there's somebody down in Ashland that kind of has southern Oregon. So if I were you, I would look into like, you got to know what your market is, where you're at. If you're up in Washington, I think you got a yak market. Um, there are people in Seattle that occasionally reach out to me um, that that don't seem to have any good suppliers there. Um, you know, if you're in the Midwest, I'd say maybe don't think about yaks because the people that I know that raise yaks out there are only selling, um, pretty much just selling breeding stock to people on the coasts um, who are who are selling or breeding um, as well. So I like I I wouldn't try to start a, a yak farm in Kansas because I know a few people around there that are not getting the same price that I am. Doesn't mean that it wouldn't work for you. But, um, you know, things like I think that it's a very so the, the general thing and we can end off with that is that I think that a niche product is going to be a lot of work and you kind of have to play into being this unique person. I I have a, I'm I look unique. I I'm I don't try and it's just the way I am. You know, if you see pictures of me, you'll recognize me. It's I've got the <laughs> beanie and the shape of my hair. It's like, yeah, okay, that's we, we just you can just see a silhouette and you know that's Yak Man. Um, <laughs> and most people like that will. So so there's something that you have to think about there is yeah. that if you're going to the niche product, then you kind of have to become that niche person. You got to have the specialty knowledge. Um, I had a long, I had a hard time finding information about yaks, about how to raise them. And so I had to get creative about playing between the different, um, studies that have been done on bovine between bison and yak and you're in, in Asia and whatever. But, um, if you're raising beef, it's a lot simpler. Yeah. Um, and, and it, and it, you're not going to make the same 
money, but you may not have to spend as much time. So I do really think it depends on where you're at, but um, it it it's uh it's difficult. I, I can say that with experience that it's difficult to build the niche market. Um, but but it can be very rewarding um, if you're willing to make sacrifices, I guess. And and th- yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, I think it, there's so many variables in that question for me. Like, so is it a niche that's underserved? Like, there's demand, yeah. but it's a supply side problem. That's a good niche, right? Or is it there's it's a niche because no one knows about it, no one does it, and you have to create a market where there isn't one. So like when we were running like 150 ducks here, we had to create a duck egg market. There wasn't a duck egg market, but we made one. But that requires a marketing skill set, right? So like if you don't have that marketing skill set, maybe you don't need to be in a niche that's not there yet. It's like the, you know, I can build a, a a hammer out of wet noodles, and it's unique, but it's not very useful, right? So, like, yeah. when it comes to a niche, like, is there a demand or can you create a demand for that niche? And then you're in a pretty good position if you can. And, like, if you think about Kansas, like, have you been to Kansas? If you're, like, out in the middle of Kansas somewhere, then... There's not a lot of really high-end restaurants. It's all it's all steakhouses that are very conventional, and they're you know there's only a few big cities or you know even like kind of wealthy suburban type places where these types of unique restaurants are going to be. And you throw COVID on top of it, and yeah, and that's really hard to make that that product work there. I'm sure it's probably a great place to raise jacks. It gets cold in the winter. It's seasonable summers. Lots of grass, deep soils. Sure, you can raise a yak, but can you sell a yak? So I think, like, it, but it makes me think of, like, uh, about, geez, you weren't born yet. It would have been 25 years ago. There was the ostrich craze. Mm-hmm. Everybody was going to raise ostriches, right? Like, I don't know what happened, but, like, and you started, like, you drive through rural Texas or whatever, and you drive by a place like it's a cattle farm, but they had this little place fenced off, and there's, like, five freaking ostriches running around, and you're like, what the hell's going on? And you're like, well, maybe this is a, like if everybody's doing it, maybe there's a reason. And you're like, what is a, you know a, a, a male and a female you know a pair cost? And I don't remember what it was. It was thousands of dollars for a breeding mm-hmm. age male and female ostrich? And you're like, so who's buying this stuff? And it was like, well, it's gonna come. Uh, <laughs> I'm not doing this, right? Like, like, well, like because the supply preceded the demand, right? So like. That has a really good chance of going down the toilet, and I'm sure you can sell ostrich burger or whatever, and it's fantastic meat. It just, it didn't resonate. You know, it didn't resonate. Like, but I could see totally building like this really strong portfolio of restaurants as a yak provider because that's unique. And then saying, guys, interested in ostriches? No, okay. Right. What are you interested? In, you know, and if you can get enough people saying we want this, then then you can expand your portfolio that way. Like, but this idea that you're just going to do something because it's rare, I think is is you know, we we have NFTs on on, on ostriches nets or something. <laughs> Who knows, man? Anyway, I appreciate you being with us today, dude. Can you tell people how they can learn more about you? Find out about your yaks. Find out about your podcast. All that stuff. Yeah, totally. So uh, my name, if you didn't catch it earlier, is Nick Hazelton, and that's H-A-Z-E-L-T-O-N, not like the town in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but um, if you look up Hazelton Farms, you'll you you should find me. Um, but if it, if you need to narrow it down, look up Hazelton Farms Yaks, <laughs> and okay. you will find me. Um, that's to find uh, the the um, 
website of the farm. My uh, podcast, I haven't been updating it, but I do have some content that I'm hoping to release, um, is uh, Yakin with Nick, um, Y-A-K-K-I-N with Nick, and you can find that on Spotify and iTunes and stuff. And you can you can go back, find uh, some of the archives. You can learn a little bit more about me, but I, I will try to do a uh, kind of an introductory thing soon because I have a couple different audiences uh, conjoining here. So I feel like I might, I might gain some more, um, some listeners. So anyway, expect some content there at yakking with Nick. Cool, man. Well, I'll make sure there's yank, uh, yanks. I guess I got yak on the brain links to all of that stuff in today's uh, show notes. And I appreciate being with us today. All right. Thanks, Jack. Well, it was a great interview. I, I really, I really enjoy talking to Nick. I do. I think that we need more people like that. You know, you hear people today getting on the younger generation, and uh, he's not the type of kid they're talking about now, is he, kid? Yeah, 22, and he's a kid. I I remember when I was 22, I used to get pissed off when people called me a kid. He he might be ahead of me because he doesn't mind it. He'd call himself a kid. Uh, at 22, I I, uh, I I was kind of trying to shed that monkey, I guess, really, really quick. In fact, I see a lot in, in this young man that reminds me of myself at his age in a different way. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. I want to remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support this show is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That is T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com and you start your online shopping there. No matter what you buy, you will help support us in the work that we do. Our item of the day today is the Oregon Self-Sharpening Electric Chainsaw. There's two versions. There's a battery-powered one, which I really like. But the one I'm bringing it around today for is the corded one, the one you plug in. Now, that means you're probably not going to be, you know, wandering all around your backyard with it or whatever. You're going to have to set up in one place and kind of use it. And a cord is, you know, a little bit in the way. But how about this? You have a, a chainsaw with a ton of safety bit in, built into it. The, the corded one, when you let go of the, the, the trigger, you're running the chain, you let go of the trigger, it's, it's immediately it breaks itself and it stops running. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, the majority of chainsaw injuries occur when the, th- when the saw has been, the throttle has been dropped and you're not running it, but that blade keeps running and people end up letting go of the saw and hitting their hand across the bar, usually across the top. This happened to my father-in-law. He had a very, very serious injury to two of his fingers, uh, broke the bones in it. It was, it was pretty gnarly. Like, I've never seen a chainsaw injury that wasn't bad. I'll put it that way. That's one of the safety features this saw has into it. The other thing about it, these saws have a built-in sharpening stone, no lever. So you pull the lever back and you run the chain for like a second and a half, and it sharpens it like really, really well. So this is a great tool, and the plug-in one is on sale, I shit you not, for $82. I'll say it again. There's a plug-in chainsaw with a 16-inch bar with all this safety built into it that self-sharpens for $82. This is why I own one. I have the the cordless one, and it is more convenient, but when this thing went on sale last time, it went on sale for $79. I bought one on principle. Like, how do you you not have that tool in your workshop and at your disposal? And then, you know, you have, I'll tell you, the plug-in one does have more power because you're plugged into AC versus using, uh, you know, a battery pack. And they're both great tools. There's a video in the write-up today, and I want to point something out. I've taken some heat on this video, and I really need to redo this. I just have never had the time to. I cut 
an old-ass piece of seasoned live oak with these two saws. If you've never done that, you, and you watch these saws, and they kind of struggle a bit going through them, you don't understand why I did it. It's like cutting freaking stone. It is unbelievable how hard a piece of seasoned live oak is. I really need to do it with you know something more like you'd be cutting. I thought I was being clever. I outsmarted myself, right? Like, let me cut this really hard, petrified piece of wood. And everybody's like, well, man, that's not that great. Um, if you've ever cut live oak, you'll be impressed as shit by it. For everybody else, I need to make a new video. But come on, guys, self-sharpening electric plug-in chainsaw, 16-inch bar, built-in safety mechanisms, $82. Well, if you don't have one, go get one. Uh, and remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Uh, we're doing a, a feature week of the Michael Stanley Band. This is, this, I said, this was a newer band for me, even though they've been around forever and have been gone for a while, actually. Uh, Michael Stanley passed away uh, quite a bit ago. Um, they were really apparently pretty big in the 70s and 80s and really more of a regional thing around Cleveland, though they do have some national music and we're on MTV, as we discussed yesterday. But this song, when I heard the title of it, I think I've heard this song before. And then I played it, and I'm like, I'm sure I've heard this song before, but it didn't sound like this. The song is called Rosewood Bitters, and it was originally recorded by the Michael Stanley Band and written by Michael Stanley in the 1970s. I think it was released around 73, but that's not the version of the song that I knew. In 1985, no less than Joe Walsh cut a version of this song and released it, and that was the one that I was familiar with. I really dig the original version from Michael Stanley, too, though. But what are Rosewood Bitters, you ask? Rosewood Bitters is made from a plant called a wood rose, interesting, right? that grows in Hawaii. And it might sound like something to make like an interesting old-fashioned or something with, you know, rosewood bitters. No, 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 you wouldn't do that. Well, maybe you would, but you probably shouldn't mix it with alcohol. Rosewood, the, the wood rose, produces a substance as a precursor to LSD. And it does. it is a psychedelic in its own right, so it's maybe not as... Uh, is is reliable in effect, I guess you would say, as uh, is prepared LSD, but it has the same effects as LSD. It's a natural psychedelic. That changes the whole meaning of this song, which I will let you extrapolate for yourself today. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been another episode of the Survival Podcast.
I'm 